that for me is just kind of the pleasure intellectually of being a Christian is to have clarity and certainty on the fundamental things of life. And then that providing um, not a restriction, but a launching pad to go off and to explore a lot of other neat areas. And uh, sometimes you get to be the discoverer and sometimes you have to crawl back home and get somebody to pat your head and tuck you in bed. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Nathan, you said it was about two years ago, so... Maybe more. I could be wrong. Maybe more. Two years ago, or or maybe more, that we did an episode on the moral necessity of being wrong. Which has been a fan favorite from way back in the day. Yes, and this was... that, That episode was your idea and was a special episode for a number of different reasons. One of them is just so, is I think probably pretty obvious right now. You're really not allowed to be wrong. It's not stated explicitly always, but if you are wrong publicly, if you do make a mistake on social media or, you know, increasingly we live, we live our, live our lives out loud. If you do make a mistake, you're punished pretty rigorous, rigorously for mm-hmm. it. And the more we talk to, of course, younger people as well will confirm that many of them live in fear of saying the wrong thing and mm-hmm. then being canceled, being written off, being sidelined, marginalized. But you can't grow at all as a human being <laughs> unless you make mistakes and unless you're wrong. And I'll say a few more words and I'll kick it over to you again, Nathan. But I actually devoted an entire chapter in a book I wrote called Faith at Lasts. I co-wrote that with my dad, Stuart McAllister. But I have a whole chapter on my failures as a teenager in particular because I was a miserable high school student. Mm -hmm. And I titled that chapter Failing Successfully. And part of that was was enabled by my parents, who at the time a lot of people thought, you both are crazy. You're, you are absolutely letting your kid get away with way too much. But they also knew that my will was in one place and they could not reach that through mechanisms of tight control. They had, they had to establish boundaries, of course. But they knew that they had to let me make, make some mistakes and walk into some of the holes that I dug. And that ended up being tremendously helpful for me in the long run. But looking back now, I can see that that was a pretty courageous decision on their mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what if you're... I'm wondering, we could kind of do a little assessment of where we were when that episode aired and what's happened since then. What are your thoughts on that topic now, Nathan? Yeah, so just to bring everybody into the conversation, that episode would be on like the old archived RZIM version of this show. So it's not linked into... Um, yeah, if you're subscribed to the new Thinking Out Loud together, you wouldn't necessarily have access on that. It probably could be Googled and dredged up somewhere as all online things can. But I think we were in a different situation there where we were representing not just ourselves, but a broader ministry and culture in which if we said something that wasn't necessarily exactly in keeping with the overall persona and um, reputation, that our employer was shooting for, then it was seen as a bad thing. Um, and Or I mean, maybe not bad, but there were times in which it would take like 40 days for one of our episodes to get okayed because there was this great fear of... That was fun. If you say, 
yeah, if you say that, I mean, so yeah, <laughs> I mean, when you think back on it, that's crazy. Um, on the other hand, if you had this very cultivated image of giving answers uh, and being right, then that really is a necessity. We function by and large on this show of really trying to be careful and strategic with the truth and being thoughtful. On the other hand, recognizing, and I know that this is true of all of you listening, that if you believe exactly the same things two years from now that you do right now, that's a disappointment mm -hmm. and you're not growing intellectually. And the only way that you can get there is through pushing the boundaries of what you know. And so this is not about being flippant with the truth. It's about being realistic about the vulnerabilities of what it means to be human, embracing that and cutting each other a little bit of slack when we're growing and genuinely pursuing. So I think there's a, there, there are forms where by and large, you're still allowed to be wrong or historically so. So last night I was helping my daughter with a science fair project it has to do with helium balloons and ambient temperature. And so it was great fun running around on ladders and taking the temperature of a balloon and seeing how many paper clips it would hold up in, in the cellar and outside in the high tunnel over the stove, you know? Um, and she had a hypothesis of what would happen. That was exactly the opposite of where the data uh -huh. points. Um, and so, and she was delighted, like the, the look of shock in her face every time that she did an experiment and, or, or did a, got a data point in the experiment and it was the opposite of what she thought it was, it was like this look of shock and delight of it's, and it's actually the look of learning on a kid's face when you can say, I thought this was going to happen and that's not what happened. And you know what, when she writes it up and says, this is my hypothesis and this is the research that I did and this is the conclusion and why she's not going to lose points for having the wrong hypothesis. That's how science works and progresses is right. you, if you knew you wouldn't have to do the experiment. So there are some little sub components and categories. And now we could say, well, science has been politicized and weaponized and all that. Yeah. Okay. But in the pure research side of it, being wrong is valuable because you're proving how not to do something or what you learn by being wrong and coming out of it is helpful. So, Okay. The question then becomes, is there more at stake when we're talking about theology, culture, Christian faith, um, moral mm -hmm. formation, and that sort of thing? And I don't know how to want to answer that because I would say yes and no to a certain extent. Like it's very important. However, I don't know anybody who <laughs> Yeah. So I, I for me it's it's weird that we have to articulate this, but I don't I don't see how it's avoidable to be wrong and almost see that as necessary in order to be a good person. If you are a thoughtful person, you will be incorrect until you receive more data on certain topics. Yeah, and it might be helpful to break this into some categories. There, Of course, these, these categories are not so neat in real life. They're heuristic devices. This is to help us organize our thinking a little bit. So you mentioned scientific knowledge. So there's, there's one realm of knowing, there's one realm of failing forward, so to speak, in the arena mm -hmm. of the scientific. You form a hypothesis, test it rigorously, and there are often surprises there. I think one important example, though, in recent years, though, would be the whole phenomenon of COVID-19. Oh, yeah. How many of us, yeah, right. So how many of us listening to this podcast right now think exactly the same things about this virus as we did in 2020? And yet, when this, this, I mean, and of course, as this has played out, there are going to be a I couple listeners you, who are like, yeah, I, I, I think the same way, but by and large, some, some, <laughs> some will, but 
a lot of our thinking on the virus, on pro- protocols and procedures and all that, where, you know, however much you may roll your eyes and all of this has changed. But part of what I've tried to stress here and has politi- you know, has some of this been over politicized? Of course, this is this is but things have always been over politicized. That's not really unique to our age, by the way. There's there's nothing new to that. And science has always been politicized because science always is often funded by, you know, government agencies and so on and so forth. So I'm just saying that to, to point out that's not that's not necessarily new. We may have reached a higher degree, but it's not necessarily new. But what I found, I think what we've talked about this before, Nathan is that there seemed to be a real superstitious view about scientists whenever they showed that they were learning. <laughs> As in, you know, oh, right. you're supposed, your expertise means that you have this all mastered already. Well, and that simply know, is, is not how any kind of scientific research works. Yeah, and that's, um, and this is this is pre-COVID too. So um, Ira Flato, who did the NPR Science Fridays, wrote a book called Present at the Future. And in that book, he talks about how oftentimes if he interviewed two scientists on a topic who had differing opinions, that it melted down mm-hmm. the comment section of his email because people just couldn't believe that there were scientists that disagreed on a topic. And he's that, so we had that's that's the it's a improper understanding of how science actually works if you're concerned about ambiguity. That being said, to bring this back into the conversation that we're having here as far as we think about our personal and spiritual growth and development and our congregational life and our discipleship, the disciples were wrong all the time in the New Testament, significantly, like way off. (laughs) Um, And it's amazing that they wrote themselves into the story as semi-buffoons on numerous occasions. There's no point, there, there aren't any points when you look at that and be like, oh, wow, they really were massive contributors to the teaching of Jesus, um, you know, while they were in their disciple ship program there. So here's the question. You were talking about categories. Let me change it to the category of people that we know versus people that we don't know. Because something that I've found is that for the people that we know, if we admit that we were wrong, that does not um, reduce our standing in their eyes and oftentimes has the opposite effect. And so that's that's something that um, my wife and I are trying to be intentional about is not jumping to an excuse for something of just coming right out and saying, you know what? I messed that up. I was not thinking clearly and you told me this and I forgot about it and I'm sorry. Not saying, well, one of the kids interrupted me while I was doing that. So I didn't, you know, owning it and saying, shoot, <laughs> I'm human and I messed that up and I apologize because you clearly told me that. Um, that does more for healthy growth and formation than trying to blame the, you know, somebody else for everything else. that's a shortcoming that actually is a shortcoming on my behalf. So that's, um, like if you know somebody in a group of people and have a relationship with them, admitting a shortcoming or a lack of knowledge or the need for help endears you to the group. It doesn't isolate you from it. I mean, have you ever yeah. been part of a group of people where somebody confessed to sin they were struggling with and you're like, oh, I don't really like that person anymore? That, that's just not how right. that works. So, Right, so we went from, yeah. So that's a different kind of category too of where do we feel like we can be vulnerable? Um, the, so, oh, okay, so is it true then that the place where you can be vulnerable is the place where you can grow? Well, yes. So now we went from scientific knowledge. Now, now we're talking, I think, relational knowledge. And relational knowledge is incredibly important for our moment. 
because vulnerability, yes, I think is necessary for growth, of course. I mean, if you just look at early stages of human development, you you get a very clear picture of this. We're we're born in into a condition of absolute and total vulnerability, needing, you know, care, nourishment. I mean, we we need everything done for us. That doesn't change though. I mean, we still we're deeply relational creatures. But one of the see this 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 is there's overlap here so there's relational knowledge i think the two most important for our moment are relational knowledge and moral knowledge because yeah okay a lot of I'm assumptions are made right and a lot of assumptions are made on both of those right now that's where you you have a growing level of the word intolerance is is kind of talk about a politicized word there but intolerance in the sense that you have no freedom to be wrong in these two areas, mm-hmm. often from a public standpoint. So it's often assumed, for instance, when somebody is attacked, let's just use an online attack. This doesn't have to be a famous person or celebrity or anything like that, but just the nature of online attacks is often that they, the one person assumes that they have at least very good or very reliable knowledge of another person's inward intentions, if not... Mm-hmm you know, total knowledge of a person's inward intentions. They often will proceed as though they know exactly what this person is thinking, what they're feeling, and where their heart is. Now, obviously, we can just pause for a moment, and we just need to acknowledge the fact that we can't do that. We don't have that kind of unfettered access to another human being. Mm-hmm. We slip into to, to operating as though we do sometimes, and in certain, especially if we're a few degrees removed from them, whether that's by, you know, technology or distance of some kind. But also, we tend to, if we can't, if we can't allow, that's when you get into those spaces where you're not allowed to make mistakes. And if if you're misread or misunderstood by somebody, even that alone can make you guilty. And so then people become more and more nervous and afraid and also more isolated and you tend to feel more lonely. Because then what ends up happening, you try to put your best foot forward, and this is basically part of the dynamics of the online world, but increasingly it's, it's part of, we try to make this part of our social interactions. And there, I mean, there are so many factors going on here, Nathan. I, I think the online world and the digital world, one of the negative features there that we see is they've introduced this level of kind of artificial control where you can construct a persona and you can carefully curate your your personality, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But what happens there is that the, the real you isn't known. And of course, you want to, I mean, one of the basic human desires is to be loved and and for who, who you are and to be known. And if you're only putting your best foot forward and, and trying to perform for people, you're going to feel really lonely. So... This runs into all sorts of issues. We haven't even gotten to the moral part yet, but I think on that <laughs> relational level, <laughs> you you run into a great deal of complexity there. And But now the good news here, Nathan, is I know that we talk a lot about trends in in the States and elsewhere that that show how much turmoil younger people are, are in in particular. But I think there's a, because of all of that, there's a growing recognition that face-to-face interaction is really important. Vulnerability is really important. And hey, Admitting that you're wrong and that you you make mistakes, not be, just because you're human, is really important. I think we're seeing. I think we're gonna we're seeing more of that. I think we will see more of that. So I'm actually 
somewhat hopeful in, in, in this arena. Yeah. Do you think that one of the limiting factors there is an idea that hurt once undamaged forever? Like, is that the sure is that the the hesitancy to be vulnerable enough to to do this? Um, well, one way it, I've heard it put is that the Internet never forgets. I think that's that's part mm-hmm. of that's part of this, especially where younger people are concerned, because it used to be that, you know, you would you would do something. And I mean, it lives on in memory, so to speak, but it doesn't it's not it doesn't have the kind of digital in, immortality that some of the some of our mm-hmm. missteps mm-hmm. have these days. So that that might be part of it as well that gives you that sense of a a scarlet letter yeah let me let me give you a quote um this is from wendell berry's book the need to be whole and it's in a section he calls degrees of prejudice and some of the the foundational background on this is his idea that you don't know people generally or stereotypically you know them as individuals um and so he would kind of really push back on that idea exactly what you've been saying of you don't know people by your assumptions about them um, so that personal knowledge thing is in there, but the questions that come out of it, um, and this is kind of Wendell Berry-esque, so brace yourself for it, but he's saying, what scale of living and working permits us to know and value one another as the individual and unique persons we know ourselves to be? Or what are the limits beyond which we disappear as ourselves into our market value as quote labor and those questions expand reasonably and naturally to this. At what scale of work are we able to attend to and properly care for everything that is involved? And so he seems to be pushing into this idea that I think you and I have been hinting at and suggesting. Um, so good job, Wendell Berry. I'm catching up to Nathan and Cameron. Uh, <laughs> as a joke, everybody. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, but to, just to say, like, there there are limits to the, to the scope of where you can learn and grow and be known. And that, and that might be like, as you're talking about, there's a coming shift and change culturally speaking. I think it is going to be in that category of saying, okay, what I see on the internet is interesting, but it dare not be formative or it's Mm -hmm. informative, but it's not me growing or, you know, like it's not who I really am or that's not who really that person really is. And so, uh, uh, I don't know what I'm, there's, it's nebulous in my mind still, but there's has to be some kind of reaction that'll or transaction that'll happen in defining right. where that is. Well, I mean, first of all, what he, yeah, part of what I think you're getting at there building on Wendell Berry's thought there is that, yeah, if <laughs> truly knowing someone, and this is something that we come, you and I come back to a lot. We did another episode on, are we, are we friends? Um, oh yeah. Because there's, <laughs> this is pretty long distance, which is unusual for, for, for your life, Nathan. But yet there are limitations to knowing someone truly. And there are only so many meaningful relationships you actually can sustain too. So yeah, that scope question of, you know, thinking that one of the words that I despise, <laughs> and I, I'm gonna, I should, I should use less severe language because it makes me sound so crotchety. Well, I'm but excited I, to hear this I, one though. I don't like the word connections. Ooh. When people replace friendships with connections, or, you know, I would love to connect with you here. I that, that there's something so thoroughly modern about that. It's Mechanical. first of all, it's word yes, it's a word you would use in conjunction with with technology, not with human relationships. You know, <laughs> machines connect, yeah, you know, your devices connect, human beings relate to one another. And so the notion that you're just, you know, you 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 and you have all these connections. And that 
I know most people wouldn't say it like that, but usually connections mean super, you know, superficial relationships, which are beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a very instrumental way to look at human beings. Now you can have thousands of connections. You can have a phone filled with thousands of connections. You could have thousands of friends on your social media. You can't have thousands of friends, real friends. Yeah. You can't have thousands of relationships. Not well, like that. Me, <laughs> well, let me throw in a word then that I dislike as well. Um, yeah, and then we'll it. get back on topic about being wrong. Yeah. So the right. one that the one that like makes me shake my head is referring to your spouse as a partner. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we playing tennis here? Like what's what's <laughs> so anyway, that's yeah, that just I don't know. Yeah, we we we, we run a law firm together. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the uh, but also yeah, no, that that kind of language, but yeah, to the wrongness aspect though. What drops out in real relational interactions is the illusion of control. Now, you can maintain oh, a tight illusion okay. of yeah, control. Yeah, this is important. Yeah, I mean, you can maintain a tight illusion of control through the di- that with the distance that technology imposes on your relationships. Now, it comes at a huge cost. It often actually fosters deep misunderstanding. It also fosters loneliness and isolation. But when you're you're actually face-to-face with people... Well, you can insult them, first of all, the way that you do <laughs> when you're behind the wheel of your car or if you're online in an interaction. It's not, you can, but it, the stakes are way higher. It's going to be quite different now. Most of us don't do that. But also, there are different, I mean, you have to, you can't avoid the fact that you have the mystery of another person in front of you. Mm-hmm. And you you might have some powerful assumptions about what's going through their heart. You, you may. But a certain you you'll it's unavoidable that you don't have this person completely sized up. You can only size a person up with in in terms of contempt for them or or reductive terms if you're at some kind of a distance. But when you're face to face, that luxury goes away. So I think the there's a tight illusion the, the illusion of tight mechanisms of control is very connected to our inability to be wrong in mm-hmm. our culture right now. Or have yeah. I was I was thinking while you're saying that um a story so I have uh ancestor who was yeah I guess moderately well known in the theological circles in which she taught in seminaries and stuff she was involved in um and there was a picture taken of her for a magazine one time where she was sitting either on her bed or her couch or something and had her feet propped up and she had a hole in her sock and it was nobody noticed it until the thing was published and she thought it was the best thing ever uh, and so here, here was somebody being kind of prized for their academic and pastoral, yeah, contribution. Like it total, but she's like, "Yes, I'm a person who gets holes in my socks," you know. And so there's kind of that uh, fun side that she wanted to get out as well of a kind of a a knowledge of balance there that mm-hmm. I don't think made anybody think less of her, but for her was kind of like a fun stabbing a needle in the balloon of overinflating who she was um, as a person, a kind of a down-to-earthness there that was endearing. Yeah, and that kind of, yeah, fun self-forgetfulness as well. <laughs> yeah, and right, yeah. Not wanting to, yeah, not wanting to manicure it and, and you know, yeah, make sure that everything is smoothed out and and perfectly ironed yeah, out managed. I think that's so helpful. what are we so what are we saying then if we're saying let's get to the moral side of this so it's it seems a little bit weird to say the moral necessity of being wrong because that implies that there's an oughtness to it 
But I think we can get that oughtness there if we're saying that you can only learn some things through A, being wrong, and B, through pushing the boundaries of what you know and where you're comfortable. Is that, are we on shaky yes. ground there? Or well, is, that, here, is that correct? No. No, you're not on shaky ground so long as we make the, the necessary absolute distinction between human beings and God. Of course, okay. because yeah, we're, we're because we, yeah. it's moral. It's morally necessary for human beings because we are fallen creatures, and but we don't often take into account the 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 outworkings of that. Oh, I'm not saying that we don't dwell ad nauseum on fallenness and and depravity and all that. That's not what I mean. I mean the outworkings of our fallenness in terms of how we learn and how we grow as persons. So. If you have a young child, and this also bugs me, people talk about, oh yeah, you just see that wickedness and depravity immediately. Okay, but you also you, you're also seeing a young person becoming a person and growing into personhood and learning and grow and and learning morally, growing morally. Mm -hmm. And one area where kids immediately begin as soon as they're sentient and soon and as soon as they're aware of property. One mm -hmm. of their first major moral challenges is sharing, <laughs> and so it's and and so part I, I love of that, how we're you, blaming this just on kids. By the way, so that's anyway. Right, well, no, but we're <laughs> that's where you can see the <laughs> that's where you see the beginning. Let's let's just go all the way back to the sandbox. But that's that. But that's a really powerful place to to. Now that, but does, do we ever do we ever lose that challenge though? That's I'm bringing up kids right now. Does sharing ever get? <laughs> Are, are, are grown-ups really good at sharing? And, you know, thinking about not just property, but thinking in terms of territories, you know, sacred lands, all of that. I mean, sharing doesn't necessarily get easier. Now, the, the sources of conflict get more sophisticated and the stakes get higher. <laughs> but this is why a lot of theologians will say, yeah, we're all just big babies. But moral growth i mean if you work when you're working with your with with young young people or children or if you have children of your own you know that moral growth isn't going to come about through just strict measures of control and legalism you you have to you have to allow the child within of course within necessary boundaries to learn how to share and to see how their how their how sharing it might improve their lives and how retreating to conflict constantly will make things much more, much more difficult. Yeah. Okay. So but the reason, so, I, yeah, well, the reason everything that you're saying is important and this is good for everybody who's listening in on this to get as well. In fact, if you've made this 26 minutes into this convoluted rabbit trail, congratulations. But this is the, the fact that you and I actually operate like this is the same reason that our podcast drives a lot of people crazy and they don't listen because we don't always speak with a hundred percent certainty on categories where we're trying to figure things out. And so we're inviting people to work through things with us as we grow and mature in them. Now there are clearly things that we are very confident on and are non-negotiables or we wouldn't be who we are at all, but there are other boundaries and parameters of reality that as young Christian men, we're kind of leaning into and making the best of it and inviting you to think through it with us. So that means that we will say things on this podcast that are incorrect. And in two years, 
we will have to go back and say, nope, we were wrong about that. And in fact, sometimes we have in the past <laughs> recorded a podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gone out. And then some a whole different set of information comes along on that. And we have to go back and say, well, we were wrong on that one. Um, I'll give you a great example. We thought COVID, you remember our first COVID? Um, I do. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's a like, I brought it up. <laughs> what a bunch of, yeah. What a bunch of like, so like media hype this is. Well, we were we wrong on that one. It significantly. Yeah, <laughs> yep. we downplayed it significantly. That being said, if you went back to what we knew at the time when we did that, we wouldn't have done anything differently because that's all we knew at the time. So mm -hmm. it's it's part of the finitude of being human and the joy of learning that um, enables us to do this. That being said, if you're one of the people who's made it to here, I think I look back on my childhood with a whole lot of failures. Um, on like all the forts that didn't work out and all the times I couldn't live for three days in the woods by myself with a fish hook and you know, all these other adventures that I constructed that were safe because I always had a home to go back to. And so I could be really, really adventurous because I had really stable, um, provision for mm -hmm. my necessities. And so I could, I could ride that eight foot unicycle and fall off and bleed a little and go home. And there was a mom to, patch me up and a dad to cheer me up. And, you know, I could, I could not make it on my own in the woods with a hatchet. And there was supper ready for me when I got home and my fort could collapse in a rainstorm and I still had a bed to go back to at night. And so there's a sense in which I think being a Christian is really intellectually fun because we do have that robust stability to continuously come back to when the boundaries that we push don't work out. And so that for me is just kind of the pleasure intellectually of being a Christian is to have clarity and certainty on the fundamental things of life. And then that providing, um, not a restriction, but a launching pad to go off and to explore a lot of other neat areas. And, uh, sometimes you get to be the discoverer and sometimes you have to crawl back home and get somebody to pat your head and tuck you in bed. So that's it, more or less, I think some of the framing that, for me makes our conversations here fun and productive. Yeah. And so, yeah. And productive. Yeah. So, and this is, this is, we hope also kind of, yeah, a good summary of maybe some of those elements that might frustrate you occasionally on the podcast, but we hope, we hope it's been, it's also helpful because this is, this is how people grow. I mean, it's interesting, Nathan, you're using the word learn quite a little bit, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Saying the word learn assumes that you're going to make mistakes and that it, it, it assumes a certain level. Well, it assumes errors and failure. Has to. And that's, again, one of the key differences between us and our creator. Our creator doesn't, doesn't make mistakes, doesn't have to think about anything, doesn't, doesn't have to you know, scratch his head, change his mind, but human beings do. And part of that is i want to yeah and so part of what i want to do is is also just emphasize that yes there's that we're we're fallen and and we need to we need to take that into account but also that we don't know everything so it i don't know if that distinction makes sense there's the <laughs> we make more we 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 have moral shortcomings and we sin and that's serious and that's one reason we need to we are not seeking we, failure we need to be realistic about that we're not seeking failure but on the other hand we also we don't know everything. So some of the mistakes that we make are just necessitated by us groping our way through this great big world and learning. So there's a fun side to that too. And part of that is what it means to be human. 
so that side, the the learning side, the the side of just discovery and learning and growing as a person and maturity. I I want to I want to say that that's not all that's that's good that's part of what it means to be a person. The notion that you're supposed to just have everything perfectly figured out and have total and complete control is actually idolatry at its heart. That's a kind of that's a vision of human beings in a godlike kind of stance. Well, well, certainty certainly sells. It does, it does because it it's safe. It comes with this big guarantee, and we probably should have another episode because this is an outworking of this on our and we when we've talked about this before but our complete and total aversion to risk these days mm-hmm. but that is not necessarily new but the degree to which we're risk averse is it does strike me as new because of our instruments of measurement basically yeah we're yeah. able to to know a whole lot about what <laughs> what is threatening us and yet we still have to face the fact that we're mortal and vulnerable and we can't control we we actually control very little. Let, can I, but yeah, we still well, need so, to be persons. So can I put in a pitch here for the church then? So we we're talking about you you can only learn in the context in which it's okay to be vulnerable, where you can still, as we often talk about, the church is a place where you can be fully known and fully loved. Um, seek Christian fellowship where it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> That's yes. it. Kind of sounds like a weird thing to say, but you need that. If you're going to grow well, places where you can legitimately bring your questions and say, I have no idea on this. Can somebody please help me? Or, hey, I tried this. That didn't work. Warning to everybody else. Don't do that. Um, that That is a sign of real health. If it's not just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, pedantically battering around ideas, but it's a place where your real life interacts with your real faith and people are helping you do that. That's a good thing to seek. So find a safe places. haven where you can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I would also say when it comes to questions and you're talking about like what we're doing, you guys send in a lot of questions and I appreciate that. Um, I'm down to under a hundred emails to go here. Unfortunately, none of you send me like yes or no questions. So um, appreciate <laughs> your patience a little time as I get back to some of your great uh, wondering thoughts and pontifications and do the best we can to respond to some of that. But it's great, um, and it's an encouragement to us to see that there are people thinking along with us and, and wondering and pondering and seeing it as a good thing and as a gift from God and the opportunity to continuously grow and learn. I think he is delighted watching us learn. And just as we uh, get a big kick out of watching a child attach paper clips to a helium balloon and be wrong, um, just as we enjoy watching and teaching, I think the Lord is a creative God. It's a communicable attribute. He created us to, to seek and to pursue and to discover and to desire and to learn and that he delights when we do that well. And so, um, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, (laughs) as you're stumbling along here, um, see it as a way to, to honor the Lord. Um, and when we do it, uh, wholeheartedly in a Christ-like way, he will meet us there and shape us and form us into his likeness. And it's a way that we'll grow into the image of the likeness of the Son, and therefore honor the Lord with our lives. Thanks for uh, being part of Thinking Out Loud and for thinking al- uh, along with us. You are listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events, Christian hope, and where most of the time we like to think we're right, but we leave the category open for the Lord continuing to work in our lives. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. 
If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.